Hey, this is Alex Schultz, and you're listening to Talkin' Blues. How are things in Stuttgart right now? Overall, fine. Um, and I live, we live kind of outside, quite a bit outside of the city, really in the countryside. Right? Okay. 45, 45 kilometers, 45 minutes outside of Stuttgart itself. Um, but Is it a little town? Yeah, small town, very, very bucolic kind of small town living. Um, but overall, things in the in the south of Germany are very, um, I think, one of the better places one could have been during this whole time. Let's put it that way. Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah. So pretty well organized, and and people for the most part are very cooperative and uh, really trying to trying to deal with this pandemic situation in a mature way have you played at all like, like just I, I know you're not gigging but are you playing your guitar at all these days yeah oh yeah oh yeah actually playing <laughs> playing quite a bit at home i think a lot of musicians thought wow well maybe this is some time for some shedding some wood shedding some practicing um and i've actually even been able to do a few limited um sessions um, in this new international way of doing things where you can work on tracks on someone else's tracks. So I'm doing some collaboration and I've done some little bits of recording um, for Bruce Bear's keyboard player and Duke Robillard's band. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. And uh, and like that. And then and also meeting up with one, one good friend. Actually, I did that at his studio. And so a little bit of little bit of interaction with music but plenty of playing yeah absolutely so I, I I'm I'm curious at this stage um and you know I I love your guitar playing but when you say woodshedding I do you do you sit there and think I need to learn this or this is something I have to work on oh man does it work that way oh yeah <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> oh yeah yeah, and I mean, the, the numbers are pretty daunting. I, I've been playing the guitar since I was 10 years old, and that would have been 1964. So I find myself now at the ripe old age of 65. <clears throat> so I've been playing the guitar for 55 years, uh, and I feel like I, I would need another 55 years to get to where I dreamed of getting. So... There's tons to learn, yeah, of course. Can you give me an example of something that you're working on? Does it work that way? Like, is there something you heard or, like, what would you be working on well, if you're woodshedding right now? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, that, that really differs with each, every musician, and I'm, I'm not that linear of a guy, as we'll discover in our talk. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so uh, it's more concepts and it's more related to jazz concepts right. i'm always sort of trying to 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 learn the vocabulary very slowly and bit by bit to expand my jazz vocabulary but it's also learning tunes learning uh also as we'll get into i'm sure you know my musical tastes are kind of wide-ranging so 
they range a little bit of outside of what we would uh, call blues. Right. So I'm I'm fascinated by songs and structure, and so it might be learning a Stevie Wonder tune, or it might be working on Georgia, uh, as done by Ray Charles, or something like that, taking things apart, trying to learn what's going on inside there, learn the architecture. So that kind of thing. And, and how does that usually start? Like, do, do you just hear something on the radio or on your turntable and you think, oh, I should learn that? Is that the way it works? Yeah, or? yeah, that's that's a good way. Or also sometimes I'll pick up the guitar. I mean, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm fairly sort of, I do it a little bit free form. As I say, everyone has different ways of doing this. I sit down, I'll play the guitar. I was doing it five minutes before we connected here on this conversation. I was, <laughs> so that I thought I'll have a guitar right by me, which I did, I have. Um, and I was kind of warming up and then I, yeah, and I stumbled on a few things and I thought, oh, I really should work on that lick and see if I can get that turnaround really how it's supposed to sound. Or so it might be something that literally while you've got the thing in your hand, you're, you're playing a tune that you know, but then you think, hmm, I could really improve that chord voicing. Let's fool around with it and see what I can do. Or it might yeah, might be that I heard something and then I thought, you know, I really want to work on Georgia and really get those chord changes right. So it's an ongoing, it's an ongoing process, <laughs> continually. Well, thank God it is. Yeah, yeah. And I think almost any musician will tell you the same thing. Sometimes the real greats say exactly the same thing. And I mean, until the day they die there, we consider ourselves uh, learning or studying. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Tell me about how you got into the guitar at the age of 10. Yeah. Well, two ways to explain it. One is, is sort of a fairly typical school experience in that um, in school at age eight, I think second grade or or what would that be? Third, third grade, fourth grade. Uh, around age eight, we were all playing the recorder. And uh, sort of the whole class was was given recorder, and um, and I enjoyed that and did pretty well with it. And I was learning to read read music. I guess I did that for two years, and then uh, I got encouraged to choose another instrument and go on a little bit. And it happened to be just about 1964 in the United States, uh, February of 64, I think it was. The Ed Sullivan Show, there came the Beatles. And uh, of almost every one of my generation will tell you the same thing. And I, I got to watch that with my parents the very first time they were on. Um, and so my choice was guitar. I mean, that had something to do with it, I guess. But uh, it was the time. It was the right moment. And uh, so I, I started to take guitar lessons in school in fifth grade. And yeah, progressed progressed with it. Was it George or John, or did it matter? <laughs> yeah, I wasn't yet that focused. <laughs> it was you know at first it was just the, it was just the impact of these 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 guys and uh, and the music itself was was really beautiful and it was really um, it was a great moment in music as we can I'll probably get into because uh, it was so there's so much. A, a part of the time 
because we very soon thereafter was Bob Dylan. There was just so much happening, and a lot of it was guitar-centric, so guitar seemed like the logical thing somehow. Um, I get the impression you, your stepfather had a major influence on you musically? That's true. That is really true, and that sort of comes into play a little bit later, but even then, um, I mean, he was... It was a good influence. I had, um, I mean, if I'm thinking about really early days of first guitar lessons, as most any guitar player will relate to, it can be quite difficult at first, uh, just making those chord shapes and trying to uh, get your fingers to do what, what they need to do. And um, I remember an event very early where I got really frustrated and I I really uh, almost did a little Pete Townsend uh, move on my first classical guitar I, I cracked it a little bit in in frustration I really kind of like hit my guitar and cracked it and my stepfather came in was angry was not not happy but he you know he talked me down from it and said sort of said get back on the get back on the horse get back on the bicycle and try try some more so that was the very first good influence he he had on me a few years later, I, I started to progress fairly quickly. By age 12 and 13, I was really getting involved, and I was doing well. I was doing good. And uh, he, little by little, started to influence my listening habits. And one of the first uh, things he exposed me to was two of the absolute giants and greats of jazz guitar, and that would be Charlie Christian playing with the Benny Goodman mm -hmm. Orchestra, and Django Reinhardt. And, you know, to get exposed to Django early um, was great. Just to be aware and just to hear, to hear this virtuosity, hear somebody attack the instrument like that. And my stepfather told me the whole stories about the damage of his left hand. His hand was burned as a child. He had a deformed hand and was functioning with really only three fingers. And that made it all the more astounding. But Django was pretty impressive. Uh, so even, you know, as as we will get into, the sort of the whole pop culture was exploding. And so there were a lot of guitar players coming into my radar screen. Uh, but I already had Django and Charlie Christian in the back of my mind, and that, that was such a great gift already. So that those were early influences that he had, and great influences. I, I wonder, because jazz is complex and not the most accessible, or at least it is. <laughs> that's the way I view it. Right. Um, and at a younger True. age... I guess you're you're probably more open to things, but I mean it's it shows a certain kind of maturity, I think, for you to embrace those artists at such a young age. It's true, maybe it's true, and um, maybe my stepfather was perceptive enough to see that I was kind of ready for it, um, because yeah, and it all links together. I mean, our subject is talking blues and. Uh, the truth is, by about age 12 or so, I had a, some hip classmates. One, one guy in particular, by the name of Josh Edelman, he had an older brother and a, and a hip family. And he 
you know, I'll never forget it because it was sort of my first awareness of blues uh, as such. And he had the first Paul Butterfield blues band record. Right. Again, I'll 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 be signifying a lot of the same things. A lot of people of my same age group will will name exactly the same goalposts because they were so influential. But so I had already sort of developed this interest in blues pretty early. And uh, I think my stepfather saw that too. And he thought, okay, if he's, if he's listening to blues, he can probably listen to Charlie Christian <laughs> and dig that. And uh, I mean, yeah, it was a little bit of a leap, but I really did grab onto it right away. And I recognized how great those two players were. Django and Charlie Christian. So yeah, something was going on early. Okay, and then did he not take you to like a Hendrix concert when you were fourteen or something? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's funny. Uh, a lot of so much happened in those first few years. Uh, you know, we could probably spend an hour <laughs> and just get me up to age twenty-one. <laughs> but um, I don't want to. I don't want to drag it down too much. But things were happening fast and again i attribute that to to a lot of things i mean right place right time you have to imagine okay it's 1966 1967 in that year we moved from chelsea in manhattan new york city west 21st street down to bank street right. in greenwich village in the west village so here i am i'm 12 13 with kind of hip parents uh, living in Greenwich Village in 1966 and 1967 there was so much happening and <laughs> it's almost I mean now I'm at an age and a time where I can reflect back and I think my god I can't believe what we lived through and also how lucky I was to be there in that time already taking guitar lessons um, so things were things were happening hot and heavy. Um, I mean, the music scene was just exploding, and contemporary music was just going crazy. And radio was fantastic, and um, it was so dominant that what was happening was uh, my stepfather, who was the real music fan in, in our family, they were getting influenced by the times as well. My parents, so you know. My stepfather, who had been mostly listening to all this kind of swing music and Django and Benny Goodman, and he was also playing some more contemporary jazz at home. But then, the next thing I know, he brought home the first uh, Big Brother and the Holding Company record. He brought home Fresh Cream. He brought home the first Doors record. Um, my By then, I was already on to my third guitar teacher, a really good teacher who's unfortunately very sadly his name totally escapes me but he was a really hip guy and also steered me to, to learning getting some blues basics on the instrument but one day I'll never forget this as long as I live this guy this teacher wrote down for me in a little piece of paper said go buy this record so living in the village we could go to West 8th Street it was kind of a whole block of, of music stores, record stores, great record stores. The good old days. I walked in. 
Yeah, yeah, and it was quite. This is the same block that Electric Lady Studios. Oh, right, right. That it's a beautiful between Sixth Avenue and Fifth Avenue on West Eighth Street. That was kind of the commercial heart of the West Village in the '60s, and was lined with record stores. So I went into one of the biggest ones with this little piece of paper. I give it to the to the guy behind the counter. I'm, uh, I guess I'm 13. Um, the guy, I will never forget this as long as I live. The guy looks up at me, looks at me, this kid, and goes, how do you know about this? I said, my guitar teacher gave it to me and told me to. It was the Jimi Hendrix experience. Are you experienced? Wow. So, uh, you know, he gave me this vinyl disc. I went home, played that record, kind of had to, like, play it again to make sure that, that I was hearing things right. <laughs> And uh, because it was so astounding, and in almost instantly, Jimmy became my my biggest hero. And my stepfather was so cool. He saw that he he must have heard me listening to these records, and or that record. There only was that record at that point. And um, we we took a little family vacation every winter in February. They would take a week off from work every winter and uh on that family vacation he said hey i have a surprise for you he pulled out a little envelope and it was two tickets from march of 1968 hunter college auditorium in the west 60s to go see the Jimi hendrix experience and yeah you couldn't have given me a greater <laughs> gift at that point <laughs> So, uh, and indeed, he took me, and it was a life-changing experience. Okay, so as a young kid learning how to play the guitar, and at this point, are you just playing by yourself or you're in a band? Um, good question. Good question. I think I was starting maybe to jam a little bit with other guys. No no real band formation. It was a little tough in the city. Yeah. And again, we're living, I'm living in Manhattan. But some classmates were also fooling around with guitars, so it might be that you'd have like one other guy would come over, one guy had a bass, and that was pretty exciting. We'd bring a bass over and okay, so uh, start to so starting to fool around with it, but not yet a, a full band. So when you see Hendrix at the age of fourteen, and you're just getting into guitar in a big way, and I presume at that by this time you had seen some other performances. But what did that performance like? How did how did that affect you when you said it was life changing? Like, what did it do to you? Yeah, well, yeah, you have to try to imagine. <laughs> and I was already um, I had come a long ways with my guitar playing by then. I was getting pretty into it. I was pretty serious. Uh, I'm not serious, 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 but I think it was pretty clear to everyone around me too that I was I was doing fairly well with it as I say I think by then I was on my third teacher first being just in school sort of like somebody that was in school then I had a teacher at home that was a cool teacher and we, we got into a lot of Dylan and kind of was the folk time so we sort of worked with some of that then I got onto this third teacher and that was the first time he let me play his electric guitar. It was the first time I ever played an electric guitar. These were different times. It was like they really made kids start on acoustic guitar, which I'm now a firm believer in. I'm very conservative about that. Right. I know kids now start on an electric, and I don't think that's good. But uh, 
so I was fairly, I was getting fairly, fairly involved. And I think by then, as I say, I'd already um, discovered Mike Bloomfield and then B.B. King because the second record really that entered our universe was live at the Regal, <laughs> B.B. King. So blues had really grabbed me, really grabbed my heart and soul. And that is something that no one can explain. I'm sure you've reached the same point with it, probably every interviewee. And, you know, I love the quote. I, I don't know who it's really attributed to, but, you know, you don't find the music, the music finds you. Mm -hmm. So it it had already found me. So I, I loved blues blues guitar uh so jimmy it was so clear that that's where he was coming from but it was also so clear that he had gone well outside of the the earth's atmosphere and the solar system you know was somewhere out taking it to new places so it was very exciting to to recognize that but, you know, you could hear the elements of his playing that were rooted in, in blues. And he was a beautiful blues player with a lot of soul, a lot of spirit, spirituality almost in his playing. And that's what, that's what touched me about Jimmy. So, and then to see him live was a whole other thing because his performance was incredible. His style was incredible. I mean, he was an absolute personification of rock star but an absolutely unique rock star black american kind of psychedelicized um with incredible clothing and crazy stage moves loud volume martial stacks it, it was it broke every so it was just kind of your eyes popping out of your head and your jaws on the ground but I was already, I was looking at it more like a guitar player. I wasn't, I, it wasn't, all that wasn't so important to me. It was really the music. Are you encouraged? Like, are you thinking as a 14-year-old, you think, I can do that? Or, do you know what I mean? Like, it's so different. And to witness that in person, are you inspired and think, I want to do that? Or are you thinking, wow, I'm not sure if that's... Where yeah, great go? question. I, I mean, a little bit of both, you know, when you when you're young, when you're that young, I I was it was so exciting. I mean, and he was so charismatic that, it, yeah, you you think that's definitely what I want to do. Um, and yes, of course, you, you look at Jimmy and you go, man, you know, that's not going to happen. I'm not going to be that. <laughs> Um, but I think I felt less of that then than I do now, for instance, you know, now I, I could realize that and you realize, man, nobody, nobody could be Jimmy, you know, <laughs> Prince right. tried and, uh, but I'm of that generation where, you know, no, sorry, man, great artist, but Jimmy, there was one, you know, there was one ever and. I also subscribe to those theories that in, in life and in art, it seems there are some shooting stars, you know, that were given that, that streak across the sky very quickly and sadly very short. But uh, he was, 
certainly one. So it was kind of a totally unique thing. But at the time, as as a 14-year-old, yeah, you're like, yeah, <laughs> I'm going to do that. <laughs> I'm not going to look as cool as Jimmy, you know. But and I was I was maybe a little bit of a serious kid. I was I was concerned with the the musical aspect. I wasn't that worried about the the fact that I could never be him on stage. I was more like I'm going to go home and try to play some of those licks. And surprisingly, I I I was I could capture some of it. I could capture some of it even then. Um so it wasn't that daunting from the musical side, although of course his sounds and and his mastery of 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 the of the of taking the electric guitar somewhere else, I never did quite get that. But there again, neither did hardly anyone else. <laughs> um, the 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 album that you mentioned, "Live at the Regal," which is like one of the greatest albums ever. But once again. At the age of fourteen, it kind of surprises me that it, it connected with you so yeah. much. Tell me about that yeah, album. Yeah, that record, I, I can't explain it, and and I'm sure that you've had you know a lot of different people say the same thing about blues. Like, why did you gravitate towards blues? And I, I can't, I can't answer that. I can't explain it. I can only say emotionally, it really touched me. Everything in that record just. And yeah, at a young age, and it was an interesting moment because, you know, the alternative, I, I grew up, I was a huge Beatles fan, and uh, AM radio in New York at that time was fantastic because we had tons of black music, so it was Motown, you know, Supremes, Temps, Four Tops, Smokey Robinson, uh, you had a little bit of Southern Soul, the Wilson Pickets and Aretha's coming through it was almost James Brown was coming in but then Beatles all British invasion from great stuff to silly you know Herman's Hermits <laughs> Everly Brothers it was such a mix of things happening on radio and then as it began to get more serious it was you know I was listening to Dylan I was listening to certainly still the Beatles um, and then and then it was starting to get, you know, from Michael Bloomfield, then it was Cream, then it was, et cetera. It was getting, and Hendrix, but BB was like, it was something different. And I could sense the seriousness of that music and the, the, the soulful power of it. I, I don't know how else to explain it. It just grabbed me, grabbed me inside, and it made me want to, play the guitar and I started copying it's probably one of only two records I ever spent a lot of time like just playing along with that record at home uh, trying to emulate those sounds and, and I started to get it I started to get there pretty early on so it was surprising and I can't explain it <laughs> okay so at what point I know you went to you went to um, Berkeley School of Music right. So what point did you decide that maybe music was what you were going to pursue? Well, I think right about that time I was playing along with Live at the Regal, to be honest with you. <laughs> I mean, really, like at that point, and I think a lot of musicians will say similar things. Um, 
you don't want to get too philosophical about it and I don't want to get too maudlin, but you know, I, 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 I look at back on it now and I really feel like, um, the guitar sort of saved me and, and music kind of saved me, uh, gave me, gave me something to, to follow. And, um, I think I felt even then a bit that way. It was like, I knew, I pretty much knew I had found my thing, um, at 14 or 15 playing that guitar. I didn't know what the hell I was going to do with it. I couldn't imagine how I would have a career or what I would do with that. And, uh, but I just knew it was never going to stop. You know, I, I, it's something like that. You make a, you know, inside that that thing is, is there with you. So I knew that from, from early on, I just didn't really know what to do with it. So I'm curious as to, I know that you had hip parents who took you to like, like really amazing shows. Um, from an early age, um, was your mom into music as much as your stuff? It's funny, she wasn't. She really wasn't at all. I mean, she <laughs> she uh, was like the Supremes and Simon and Garfunkel, and that's about all I can name out of a whole <laughs> lifetime of her musical stuff. And she kind of put up with with my stepfather's being so so crazy for music. And then during those late '60s, early '70s, music was such a big part of the culture that there were a lot of records getting played at our house and she was kind right. of tapping her foot along, but no, she wasn't, she just wasn't clued in. She wasn't really just one of those people that wasn't. So I'm curious as to, you know, when you said, I think I'm going to go to music school and pursue this. Mm -hmm. I don't know how your stepfather reacted to it, but how did both of your parents react to that decision? Well, that gets, yeah, there, there are some murky years in there, and again, this, the 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 real inside story is a little, you know, uh, a little bit difficult. But it, it was more like, <laughs> how can I put it? If I uh, you might have to edit this out, but shit or get off the pot, we would say, <laughs> um, right. sort of like if you're really going to be a musician, then get on with it and do something. You know, I think by, at that point they were a little frustrated with me because I'd been fooling around with it for a long time and it had been clear for for a while that I had the ability to do it to do something with some god-given talent if I got off my own butt and worked a little bit which I was not uh demonstrating much self uh discipline so it was sort so of this is before you went to Berkeley right I mean I was I was okay. doing things and I was playing but yeah things left to my own devices I was not progressing maybe um, from the standpoint of of furthering my career and furthering my development um, as a professional musician I wasn't really furthering myself the way that I should have been so maybe there was some thought there was some encouragement actually hey get serious about it and then this is the best school uh, in the country at this point. So we'll help you out to go there if you do it, you know, do something, do something with it. So they were very encouraging. What did that experience of going to Berkeley give you? It gave me, man, it gave me everything in a way. Uh, because I, so I had developed to a point where 
it's really like blues had been my guiding light on the guitar um, from, let's say, age 13, 14. Really, that was my focus. And I had sort of pretty quickly assimilated some B.B. King style and Michael Bloomfield and the early the, the Clapton record with John Mayall's Blues Breakers, usually referred to as the Beano record. Um, Eric Clapton, those were my sort of three guiding lights. And I had really assimilated that. I could, I could do that pretty well all through my teens. Um, <clears throat> but I was hungry for expanding my horizons. And, and then I had really gotten bit by the jazz bug. My stepfather had kept playing me records and started to play me much more challenging records fairly early on. Uh, contemporary Miles Davis records, John Coltrane records, um, all kinds of stuff. And I could hear, I would pick up the guitar and I was limited. I was, I really had this blues vocabulary. And then I would listen to a Yusuf Latif record or whatever. And I realized, wow, I'm lacking uh, a lot of vocabulary here. There's a lot more going on than, than pentatonic uh, blues playing. And how do I, how do I get there? So I had done a little bit of studying before I actually went to Berkeley to try to basically to try to learn jazz. To, I wanted to play straight ahead jazz. I wanted to play bebop on the guitar and I wanted to be, I wanted to be Wes because, yeah, my stepfather was playing me Wes Montgomery records and I loved, I fell in love with that. Uh, and then it was like by the time I did go to Berkeley, it was like George Benson, Pat Martino really heavy straight ahead challenging jazz guitar and and that's a really difficult discipline it's not an easy instrument to master for that kind of vocabulary so i knew that i needed to work so that's what i was trying to get to and then sometime around then or a little after you wound up picking up the bass is that correct i uh, Actually, that had, was that long that had come early, pretty early, probably about 17 in some, yeah, there was this period, sort of a period there between my really early years and when I did finally get going up to Berkeley. I was already about 20 at that point. So there were some years in between, and I had some good growth in those years, and I was starting to jam a lot around New York and with some friends in Brooklyn. Uh, I had found a whole sort of group of musicians and these two brothers had a they lived they had an eccentric mom and they had a basically a studio and um so i could go there and like really jam and really play with drums and bass players and uh and there was a, a band came out of it and um and there were some really good players so it was my first time sort of getting to hang out with players that were really better than i was which every musician will tell you is that's when you do your growth so that that was a great experience, and they were they were more like rock guys, but there were blues players within that scene, and the musical thing was expanding again. And we had the the classic situation where we'd get together. There'd be like four guys that were essentially guitar players, and a really great drummer, and there was a bass rig, and there was a bass amp, and there was a bass, and it was kind of like everybody would look at everybody else and go, okay, who's Who's doing it? Who's playing bass? You know, you'd kind of like draw straws. 
So it started like that. Let's say when I was around probably 16 or 17. And uh, I found that I really enjoyed it. And also I was probably the best one of all the other guitar players. It's like every guitar player can technically play some bass, but I uh, just fell to it naturally. And I really dug it too. I really enjoyed it. Um, and what what kind of style or who would have been a bass influence? On well, yeah, it's funny. As a bass player, I could go different places also than I could go as a guitar player. As a guitar player, I was so blues oriented that kind of everything I did came out pretty bluesy. Even if I tried to play rock, real rock, I was never like a real great rock guitar player. I was always playing basically if it, if I was playing rock, it was bluesy. Right. But as a bass player, I felt more free. So that was kind of cool because, and we were getting, these guys had all kinds of crazy influences. We were listening to uh, the Yes album and Fragile by Yes. And that right. was like really progressive music. And Chris Squire was playing really cool bass. Some of these guys were also Who freaks. So, and we had you know, gone to see the Who a lot. And John Entwistle was a bass uh, hero of, and by then we all had recognized that Paul McCartney was kind of a genius. So that school was one side, and then soul music, black music, um, the bass playing was always outstanding. And I knew that even as a kid, just listening to the radio, we used to talk about that and go, wow, soul bass players are great. Because, you know, imagine all that stacks of old stuff you've heard. Sam and Dave and all these kind of things coming out of the radio. So that had influenced my bass feel also, I think. So it was a combination. And how how do you think your bass playing influenced your guitar playing? Yeah, it ended up all being a huge thing. And it's funny, again, I reiterate, it's I'm in an interesting age now where you can reflect back and you begin to understand so much. It all falls into place. And I realized that... Um, Essentially, I'm a pretty rhythmic player, whatever instrument I'm playing. My guitar mm-hmm. playing actually is pretty rhythmic, and that's probably my strongest suit is my time and my feel. And um, I, I don't have tremendous chops. I'm not the guy that's going to blow you away with speed, you know, or technical wizard, wizardry or blazing Stevie Ray Vaughan kind of thing. Or uh, it never. That was never really my suit, but my what we would now call my pocket, my groove, my time, feel, that is probably my strongest suit. And so I don't know which came first, the chicken or the egg. Like, is that the reason that I gravitated towards bass and I was the better bass player in our crowd? Probably. But I also always felt later I realized, wow, uh, my bass playing really helped improve my guitar playing in those areas. Groove, pocket, time, phrasing, um, because bass playing is all about time and groove. It's it's interesting you say that, because I think of that time that I saw you in Toronto at the Distillery Blues Festival right. with Tad. Right. And... And I remember that day for a couple of reasons. One is that it was so yeah, humid, yeah. <laughs> like it was like it was like ridiculously humid that I was filming some stuff and my camera conked out because it couldn't handle the oh, humidity. Wow. But the other thing I remember is that performance that you guys gave 
that band was amazing. But your guitar playing was like phenomenal. And it wasn't, you know, like guitar solos, but it, it would be if somebody said, name me a tasteful guitar playing. That's what I think of is yeah. tasty. Like, I, and then it just floored me the way you, you played it because it wasn't over the top, but it was just stunning in, in how tasteful your playing oh, was. Thanks, man. Thanks. I'll never forget that. How did you meet Tad? Yeah. <clears throat> that was a great moment and a great and funny thing. And that we both are born and raised in Manhattan, in New York City, but we actually did not know each other in the city. Oh. Um, we met at uh, a place where both of our parents had summer like cottages out on Long Island in a place called Fire Island, right? Uh, which is off the South Shore of Long Island. And because um, if you if you lived in the city and and your your folks were if you, if if your family at all had the ability, everybody tries to get out of the city in the summer one way or another. And if you have kids, especially you want to get out of the city. So my parents had rented a small house out in Fire Island since 1960. Um, so it was like, you know, almost have your childhood as a city kid. I did a lot of my sort of growing up normal kid stuff out on Fire Island. It was a very important place for me, still is to this day. Right. And that's where I met Chad. So I had some friends that were already kind of like a guitar buddy or two, some guys that just fooled around with, with music. And during uh, the summer of either 1976 or 77, one of our, we had like a mutual friend. There was a guy that knew me. He's still a friend of mine to this day, Ken Ferranda. Shout out to him. He's a great guitar player and great singer uh, in the New York State area. Right. Um, Ken was out there, and he came up to he came to me a few times, and he said, "Man, you got to meet this guy, Tad Robinson from Doonwood. He was like from the next town over. Uh, <laughs> man, he's great. He's unbelievable. He sings and plays harp. He sounds great. Sounds great." And um, and he was telling Tad the same thing about me, but we were typical. You know, we were like whatever we were, I don't know, 18 years old or something, or I was like that. Chad was a little, he's a little younger than me, two years younger, I think. And we were like, yeah, 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 you know, sounds great. And then you're, you're on to the next thing. But finally, one day, like, there's a knock at my door. Ken Ferranda is knocking on my door. He goes, Alex Schultz, this is Tad Robinson. Tad Robinson, this is Alex Schultz. You guys <laughs> he brought Tad physically over to my parents' house and Dragged him in. He's got a he's got a Marine Band harmonica. I've got an acoustic guitar, and we're like, oh yeah, man, let's jam. You know, what do you want to do? Ah, play a blues and he, okay, whatever. <laughs> we start playing, and it was like three hours later. <laughs> we we better take a break here. <laughs> and he was he was unbelievable. I mean, I I'd, I'd never really played with a, a sing a guy that could sing like that. So it was a revelation. So what's it like to be playing with somebody who you've known for so long? Like, is there, like, it must be a neat feeling to get on stage and maybe even recall that first time, but. It's a great one. It's totally unique. And it, actually, he's really the only guy that I have sort of that kind of connection with. And 
you know, it's interesting. It kind of overlaps what we were talking about before about my rhythmic thing, which I, I really it took me a long time to sort of recognize that about myself, my own playing, that that's my strong suit. Well, way back in those days when we started to do that, to just hang out at the beach and jam, I mean, Tad was so great because he didn't need any equipment. He just literally needed like a couple of harmonicas in his pocket <laughs> of his shorts and his voice was huge. So, you know, we didn't have PA. It wasn't, it wasn't about a performance. We were just having fun. And I was just working with acoustic guitars. So, uh, and sometimes like some other, these other guys would sit in on guitar, but I very quickly realized it was like, okay, I got to hold this down. These other guys are fooling around and they can noodle around and they can solo some, but they can't really play very strong rhythm guitar. And by the point I met him, I had already done the Berkeley thing. I had already been two years of Berkeley school of music. I was like kind of a schooled musician and uh, I knew quite a bit about chords but my rhythmic thing was strong. I was able to, I could see right away, okay, what we need is we don't have any drums. We don't have any bass. So I got to like make all this noise on this acoustic guitar and set up a groove for tab. That's what's important. Not, not the solo. Yeah. I'd love to do that. And I can do that all night too. But what we need here is we need a bass and a drums and, and a rhythm guitar. So I had to do all three at once on an acoustic guitar which you can kind of do. You can make some rhythmic sounds and get it grooving along. So that's how I developed playing behind tab. Actually, this is all now really crystallizing for me as I try to tell it to you. <laughs> that, that in a way that probably formed, you know, the role that I still play with him. is like, it goes back to those days when it might've been just the two of us or maybe him and me and one other guitar player who wasn't really carrying a whole lot of the weight. So back then I would like play kind of like a bass line and a chordal thing and a, and a rhythmic pattern that made the rhythm real strong so that he could, you know, give him like a bed to do his thing on top of. So now maybe that, you know, like that informed my role even later. Um, is that thing just playing behind a great singer or is that thing playing behind a harmonica player or both well it turned out to be both yeah it turned okay, out to we, be both and then the other thing is you've played with a lot of great harmonica players over the years would that have been like the one of the first times you would have played with a harmonica player yeah yeah kind of yeah and it's funny because like my very you know really that first 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 record was that Butterfield record, first Paul Butterfield record, which, and then the second one, East West. But right. we now realize, you know, those records, the core of them was kind of covers of Little Walter and Muddy tunes. So it was like I was sort of already getting exposed to the the real Chicago blues songbook uh, right away. So I had that sound in my ear, you know, I knew what a harp-based band was supposed to sound like but yeah i hadn't i hadn't really had the chance or not to play with anybody even halfway serious and tad was pretty serious and he knew a lot of stuff and he was the first guy that really started to tell me like what these tunes were he was like well let's do this sunny boy uh pontiac blues or uh, he was doing a bunch of sunny boy tunes 
He was doing little Walter tunes. He was doing Muddy tunes and Wolf things and teaching me those. Like I could hear where they needed to go, but it was the first time I was really exposed to that. And then, yeah, if I could really back him up solidly, which I was sort of learning to do on the fly, then he would really blow. And then I started to get the feel for like, oh yeah, okay, I see how this works here. Um, so that was really key, yeah. And which he is... actually did steer me to to the West Coast harp players, but I'll let you ask a question. Go ahead. Uh, well, I, you know, it's interesting because I presume at one point in your career, you were probably known in a lot of ways for you, your work with great harmonica players like William Clark, like Rod Piazza. Absolutely. Um, and, and you, I mean, I, I presume that people thought, okay, he's West Coast Blues and he's also a guy who you get if you want to have somebody behind a harmonica player. And I, I don't know if that kind of defined who you were, but in, in, in a way, I think some people picture you as that guitar Absolutely. Player. And I'm still, in a way, I'm still kind of tagged with that. Yeah. Yeah. So actually, as an aside, I'm curious on your solo album, Think About It. <laughs> you work with great, great singers and people who actually play great harmonica play, harmonica players, but I don't think you feature harmonica on that album, do you? No, absolutely not. And, and was that and, purpose? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because at that point, I mean, yeah, it all it all relates to the same thing. Is this this thing that started with Tab, um, you know, kind of like lit a fire where I realized, okay, yeah, I can do this now, or I can, you know, to play behind him was just incredible. But. Um, I, the rest was not at all planned in that I then, I then, I mean, I'm, I'm going to answer your question maybe a long way around, hope, hopefully not too long, but hopefully that's okay. <laughs> it's never long enough. Um, um, I, because literally it was interesting, Tad and I, we kind of like had like two, I think it was really just two summers where we were really together out there at Fire Island and, and it turned into a thing we would play and like huge crowds would gather all of which I attribute to him but I was backing him up really well so I was kind of like letting him really uh, shine and then people would just come around they would hear this voice and they couldn't believe it was coming out of this little white kid basically um, anyhow when uh, at the end of that second summer he told me yeah I'm going to school in Indiana to, to music school and uh, and I said, oh, funny, because it looks like I'm moving to Los Angeles, actually. So that by that point, it must have been summer of 79. Because at the end of that summer, friends of mine from Berkeley, from guys, some guys from Long Island, had moved out to L.A. And they had one thing led to another, but they called me to come out to play bass, actually, in sort of an original rock project that looked like it might have a record deal. That's what drew me to Los Angeles. And when I told Tad, yeah, it looks like I'm going to move to LA. He said, Oh, you got to look up this guy, Rod Piazza, Rod Piazza and the mighty flyers. Cause he had, Tad had already turned me on to the fabulous Thunderbirds, um, which was sort of this, this whole new, it was like, okay, a new generation right. of, of interesting bands led by 
harp players. I mean, the the T-Birds were unique and really exciting at that point. So that had really captured my imagination. It's like, wow, okay, this is a, this is a different twist. And um, then he said, yeah, you should look up this guy, Rod Piazza. He's like the cat. And funnily enough, it took a few years. I didn't see Rod right away. And then I did see the band, that band quite early. And I wasn't that taken with it. I was like, wow, this is really different. This doesn't really sound like, doesn't sound like the Fabulous Thunderbirds. And it doesn't sound like the Paul Butterfield Blues Band. It's different. It's a little bit lighter, kind of. And it was Junior Watson playing guitar. And it was very West Coasty, very swingy. So I wasn't really that, uh, it didn't grab me right away. But, but um, anyhow, I kind of, so then I, I ended up spending about close to 10 years really immersed in that West Coast blues scene and ended up playing with two of the greatest harp players of our generation. Three, actually, because later came Lester Butler. Mm -hmm. Which was also kind of a departure too, right? Absolutely. That was a whole different whole different thing. But between first William Clark and then Rod Piazza, I mean, those were the, the giants, along with Rick Estrin, James Harmon. Uh, but Rod and, and Bill Clark were really, really incredible players. So I really went fully into that world. Um, and there are reasons I think I was kind of uniquely qualified. You know, the way I, I tell it is I, I look at myself as a failed jazz guitar player because um, I really had those dreams in the in the mid-70s. I really wanted to be, all I wanted to be was George Benson. I mean, that, that would have been it, man. But I kind of realized, hey, man, I'm not, I'm probably not going to get there. That's just too demanding. That takes too much focus i don't quite have the focus to get there i can grab elements of that style and i learned a lot at berkeley i learned a lot about harmony and some so i had some jazz concepts i had some chops i knew how to apply that stuff it tied into the charlie christian that my stepfather had turned me on to absolutely fit like a glove you know into this west coast thing and i had a breakthrough night one night actually when I went back to see the Mighty Flyers a few years later, my great friend Steve Samuels brought me and said, you got to see Junior Watson. You got to see Junior Watson. You got to see Junior Watson. <laughs> okay. And it, I had like a light bulb night where we went to see them and it just happened to be a night. They were really on fire. And <clears throat> a small club in Seal Beach, the Sunset Pub. And uh, Junior was just playing like crazy man swinging so hard but it was blues but it was swinging and then i just this light bulb went off and i went wait a minute i can do that it's that's really not that far off from charlie christian and to me to me bb i could see the lineage directly from bb to charlie christian so i thought i can do this man and uh, that's what happened so i kind of i was uniquely qualified to do it so so i did but so by the time I made a solo record, I'd been playing with harp players for 10 years and I'd have every harp player in the world calling me by the time I left Rod's band. So the last thing in the world I wanted to do 
was play with more harmonica <laughs> players. So that's really why almost why I made a solo record. It's not, you know, it's not that, oh, I never want to play with a harp again, but uh, I don't need to play with a harmonica player right now. Yeah, you certainly didn't have anything to prove at that point. Right. I presume playing with Rod Piazza and the Mighty Flies was a big move for you. Yes, it really was. And you were there for like exactly. seven years exactly. or something. Yeah, it was huge. It was a huge thing. It's funny, I was just thinking about it the other day, too, how, what that felt like at that moment. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was a, it was a big opportunity. Because by then, I had, I had sort of really um, inserted myself, let's say, into that scene. I had found a place within that scene, that, let's say, that West Coast scene. I had been playing with William Clark. I'd been sitting in with a lot of people, playing with a lot of people. Um, so I'd kind of gotten to know that scene, and that scene had gotten to know me a bit. And I, I felt like, okay, this is probably my my tribe. This is my world because it was this. I was able to sort of bring my jazz knowledge and my jazz side of my playing, such as it was, into like integrate it into this blues thing which was my core um so i really dug that it was like really exciting for me as a player it was like oh man i really found a cool avenue here that seems to work and it was seeming to things were rolling and then i could kind of look around i mean this is sort of what i was just saying in my last answer was that i in a sense i, I can see now that i was kind of uniquely qualified for it because there were guys that were really steeped in really traditional blues or Chicago styles or country blues that knew a lot more about technically about elements of blues guitar than I did. Um, I had really polished this BB kind of style of playing, which, you know, some people would sort of maybe say, oh, that's not all that deep or it's not all that difficult sort of that's the first thing that a lot of people grab onto. But I had really taken that pretty far. I could do it really nicely. And, but then I had been studying jazz and, and I had applied the jazz knowledge to blues on my own because I wanted to sort of learn some jazzy blues, soul jazz type of stuff. I'd already been messing with that quite a bit. So when I heard all this West Coast stuff going on, I thought, oh man, I can apply all that stuff kind of mix it together and I was a bit different than any of the other guys around Los Angeles at that point there were other guys that could sort of do it or they could really copy T-Bone Walker let's say but I wasn't big on trying to copy licks I was more like trying to play it from the inside out like trying to actually improvise within that within a sort of genre so anyway anyhow I, I had the right, I had this kind of cool combination. The the guy that I could relate to the most on the West Coast in a way is Charlie Beatty. Although little, little Charlie, although I didn't, right. I never had the technique that he did. I mean, he was like a terrifying guitar player with chops and everything. I, I was lazier, so I didn't have the, the chops, but I had a little bit like the knowledge like, like he did. So I was attractive to some of those guys. So basically what happened was Junior Watson was was done with the Flyers. He had done 11 years 
with Rob Piazza, I think, and he wanted to move on. <clears throat> he had an opportunity to play with canned heat at that point. He just wanted to move on. So the word was kind of out, like, oh, Junior's going to quit. And then it was like, well, who's going to get this gig? There weren't really that many qualified candidates around town that could really do that. And I just was the guy. I had I was sort of a new guy on the block, but I had I had the right stuff. So I got that call. And um yeah, it was a it was a big step up in terms of professionalism. I mean they were a band I knew for for instance that they were traveling to Europe twice a year, uh regularly and were like doing really well on the international festival circuit. And that was super appealing to a relatively young guy. It was like, yeah, I like to travel. So I, I thought, wow, that alone was sign me up, you know, to get paid to go to Europe to play blues <laughs> guitar. Yes, I'll I'll take that. <laughs> so, yeah. And they worked a lot. Exactly, exactly. They were super busy. And I dug that. I mean, I was I was working all the time at that time. But when you're when you're young and on fire like that, you want to you want to just play. So, uh, yeah. So, so it was great. So seven years later, were you at the same place that Junior was at that you decided yeah, to leave? In a sense, I mean, yeah. In a nutshell, yes. Um, yeah. And I I was really lucky in in that I got some really great prime sort of prime years with them um and we had done reached a point where we had done some really great gigs and opening for the neville brothers and opening for dr john and opening for bb king i mean that was the dream i got my actual original very same copy of live at the regal signed by bb backstage in santa fe new mexico on a gig with the mighty flyers so I felt like, yeah, I almost felt like, wow, we pretty much probably reached the peak that we're going to reach with that band. I could sort of see that maybe it had already plateaued. Um, and I, and I was, yeah, I was getting a little hungry for other things. I mean, by that point, by that was spring of 1995, I'd been, it had been about a solid 10 years in that sort of West Coast blues thing and I was kind of like getting in touch with with myself and realizing that I was missing some other elements of music. Okay, so the moment that you go to BB King with your Live at the Regal album and this is the second major blues album you purchased and you also witnessed them witnessed him opening up for um I can Tina Turner and the Rolling Stones from the yeah. Get Your Yaya's album right. or that tour. So what's that moment like when you hand him the album? And I don't know if you had many exposures to BB, but that moment when you give him the album and say, "BB, can you sign this?" It was, what was that moment like for you? It's, it's nice that you actually caught that because, yeah, it's probably the most uh, starstruck moment I've ever had in my life. And I did get to I got to bump into Eric Clapton once and talk with him for about three four minutes just on the street in Westwood Village in Los Angeles. And that was a, another moment that was exciting. Um, but BB, yeah, that, that was really, so it was so um, incredible that I, I actually 
or it was so, um, how can I say it? I was so awestruck that I, I forgot, you know, I mean, these were the days before mobile phones and all that, but I wish to this day I had had a photograph made, you know, and I didn't, I realized mm -hmm. some years later, like, wow, it didn't even occur to me because I was like on cloud 27 <laughs> just to be in his, in his backstage. And the story gets even deeper because what happened was, and we had, we were in the midst of a long tour and uh, like a almost three week tour at that time we used to do, I mean, those are about the longest tours I've ever done, but we would do a ground tour of 21 days. So in other words, driving from California right. all the way to the East coast and all up and down the middle and gigs everywhere. And this was a driving tour. So I, but I knew there was this one date and this small like amphitheater Santa Fe where we were the opening act for BB King. Uh, so I had brought this empty, I brought just the, the, the cover of the record, not the, not the vinyl itself. I left that at home, but I had to drag that thing for the whole three weeks just for that moment to get it, you know, on the chance that I would be able to get it signed. So I had gone through a lot to do that, but not only that, on that tour, I was playing an archtop guitar, uh, 1951 Gibson ES5. That's a big hollow body with three P90 pickups. Um, it's the T-Bone Walker guitar. And BB had also been photographed with a blonde version of one of those, some famous pictures of him on stage with this amazing, beautiful guitar in, in a pants suit with shorts. <laughs> it was on the cover of an Ace, one of the early Ace compilations of early BB stuff. It's kind of a famous photograph. But so I knew that BB had owned an ES5 for sure. And, and T-Bone Walker was his ultimate hero. So he had had a T-Bone guitar. And here I had the CS5 on that tour. And I brought that, I was able to bring that guitar into the backstage. I handed it to BB. I said, you had one of these ones, didn't you? He took my guitar. And he sat down and he played and he said, I still do. And he told a story and he said that his sister, a sister of his, had saved it from a fire. Um, that there was a fire in a house and she had saved that guitar and grabbed it. So when he got it back, so he still got this blonde ES5. But so he sat down and played my guitar. And at that point, I mean, that's when I was really, I was like somewhere else. My, I just was so transfixed and it was such a, yeah, it was one of the most amazing moments of my whole life. What can I say? It just, yeah, as CB became play my own guitar. And he kind of in honor of the guitar, he played kind of like jazzy stuff, almost Django-y because he, he can do that. He can play some, some funny jazzy. And he played some little jazzy runs and then he kind of hit a B.B. King stinger note of vibrato, one note. And he looked up at the room with this, like, with that beautiful smile and said, now that's B.B. King. <laughs> and, and I mean, you know, that's just one of those moments that you, I tell the story now and I have to, ch I'm like, did that really happen? But it did. It really did. Wow. So that was also the same moment he signed the the live at the regal but i was so like stunned i wish i had had someone take a photo at that moment just of him playing my guitar i still own that guitar too wow that's amazing so, 
Yeah, um, and I'm not uh, not selling that one. That goes to my son. <laughs> Does your son play? Uh, not guitar, no. Okay. Not guitar. He plays drums. Oh, okay. Yeah. At this point, what does your parents think about your musical career? Well, that was a good point. By that point, it was a good point. Um, you know, I, and it, it took me a while. I was a late bloomer, and I, and I had some lost years in there um, where I was, stum you know, I was stumbling with my musicality was was fine pretty much it was still clear that i could do it if i if i applied myself but i wasn't applying myself that well but so i think they were they were really proud and they were happy they were happy for me because they knew i was doing what i had always dreamt of doing and at that point that was really a high point where we're traveling around the world getting paid you know Flew, did a festival in Japan, went to Australia twice, all over Europe and Scandinavia. So getting played to go play blues guitar, they knew I was, I was happy. Right. So they were very, they were very happy. Like I wonder, somebody like your mom, who is such a success, and if I'm not mistaken, she was like the first uh, chairperson CEO of a Fortune 500, a first woman to be um, a CEO right. of a first. Five, Fortune, Fortune 500 company, company, which is an amazing accomplishment. Could I ask? Indeed. Could I ask you what she might have taught you to be who you are? Yeah, that's a good question. It's a great question, actually. And my mom was a she was a really wonderful person and a basically very humble person and um, very hardworking. I'd imagine yes. very creative and gifted for sure, um, but where I where I see it, like the interesting story. This is and I've sort of like made this analogy sometimes, because some people, if they ask a little bit about my mom, they know the name of the of the business, which was Liz Claiborne. It's it now is does not mean that much now. It's it's from a different time and that that. The company with that name is no longer existing, but at the time it was a huge business all through the 80s mm -hmm. and 90s. It was one of the biggest apparel companies in the United States. So, um, but the funny thing is, yeah, everyone knows her as the namesake of Liz Claiborne, and that was her maiden name. That's her real name. Uh, but the thing with the, uh, that they don't know is that she worked for about 20 years, at least 15, as a designer, as the head designer of a small sportswear company that was a division of a bigger sportswear company. So sort of behind the scenes, like uncredited, where you're the head designer of a company that just has a name, Youth Guild, in this instance, designing not particularly exciting clothes, just a gig. It's like a bit like being a great studio musician. Right. And she had reached a point where she was very respected within her industry. Um, so her contemporaries were some of the name American designers and all the Ralph Lauren's and Calvin Klein's and Perry Ellis's. And they all knew my mom and respected her from those earlier times because they knew... Um, what she had done that she had worked so she like 
paid her dues and it was a good gig. She, it was like a high paying gig. She was actually more the breadwinner in those years than my stepfather was. She had a real serious career behind the scenes. And I could kind of relate to that because I was never, um, you asked me earlier, it might've been off mic about my solo record um, that I only have that one. Uh, I I never really have been um, ambitious to be the leader. I've never was like out to have the Alex Schultz experience. And I'm still not really, I don't see myself in that role. Um, I kind of really want to be Keith Richards to somebody else's Mick Jagger, you know, right. or uh, I like being the, the wingman. I like being like the featured, featured partner, but not the front guy. And in a sense, that was my mom's thing also. So in fact, the, the way her business came about was my stepfather uh, really masterminded that and put her uh, used he knew that she had the the raw talent sort of like the creative side but he put together the whole team and and the whole business and it was his concept she wouldn't have done it on her own so i'm kind of that guy also so in that way i think that's the end that's my long form answer to your question i you know i i think of musicians as talented as one could be it's a difficult business, right? Like you would know that it's not an easy business to be in. Absolutely. I can't even imagine how difficult fashion would be. Like I would think that might be even more difficult than being in music. Yeah, yeah. It's a really crazy business, yeah. So, so for instance, yeah, all that time she did behind the scenes, that was considered a great gig, even though it was designing kind of schlocky clothes. Like not, she didn't love what she was making, but she had a really steady gig that paid great and all the work she could want, um, still doing what she loved, which was cutting, cutting up pieces to make samples and, and sketching out ideas and making stuff. Yeah. So she was doing the thing that she loved, even if it was sort of commercial and getting paid for it without having to worry about, cause yeah, as soon as they launched their own business, I mean, my stepfather and the story they tell is, they didn't do that until I was past 21 because they gambled everything and they, the chances were high that they would just lose everything quickly and get wiped out. I mean, it's like you can you can take a roll and in, in a year you're wiped out and you've blown all, all your capital. And yeah. So it would have been back to square one. But um, they happened to, they had a really good combination. My stepfather's concept was totally right on and he was right in that my mom had the chops she had the talent and they did it they did it right and they did it they happened to hit it at the right moment so they did great did fantastically but they had they had no idea it would take off like that for sure that business is crazy yeah totally nuts and then they a few years into it they took it public also they issued stock which was like unheard of in the fashion business because nobody on wall street would want to invest in a designer brand because it could easily easily crash and burn but they they had built such a strong team and such a strong company that it even that worked going public so that's when they really went mega wow that's yeah yeah it's interesting the business story is 
fascinating. I can imagine. Um, did she did she talk about that a lot with you, or not really? Um, well, yeah, um, yeah. It it was. I mean, it was really their lives. They 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 lived it. Um, so any time I spent with them, you know, when you live a lot, I mean, maybe maybe we could continue that musician analogy. It was like it was twenty four seven for them. Right. It wasn't. It's not like a nine to five job and then you shut it off. Yeah. It's like their whole, even in their downtime, they couldn't help themselves. That's all they were talking about. So if I spent time with them, whether I wanted to or not, I heard about it playing. Plus it was, it was exciting, the things that were happening and the things that they were doing. And they were kind of trying to break some rules within that business, which was good because it's also a business that you could continue the analogy like, I mean, the truth is the music business is pretty dirty, dirty business uh, from the top to the bottom. I mean, in other words, even at the at the super high level, right? In those those days when there was tons and tons of money, major labels, they still treated artists pretty horribly, and then there was a lot of corruption. And I mean, going back to the fifties and yeah. payola, which I think basically sort of never went away, and um, down to the low end indie, you know, my experiences with the blues and even during the blues boom and being with some of the bigger bands and on the bigger indie labels, you know, they, the, the artists just got treated terribly. And it's, it's a, it's a tough business and a dirty business and crooked and, and the, the, the rag trade, as they call it in New York, was pretty pretty dirty behind the scenes too, and uh, they they tried to break some of that, which was cool. They did some good stuff and changed some things. So, so knowing that it's such a dirty business, what what motivates you? What keeps you going? Well, I think like many musicians, you know, the truth is, it's it's the music. It's the we can't stop doing what we love. And um, there's a joy in performing, for sure. I found that I really did enjoy that. I enjoyed all those years on the road. Did a lot. Yeah. Did a lot of traveling. That's not for everybody. The traveling is tough. But the joy, the high of a, of, of a great audience and the feedback uh, for your playing is fantastic. It's just a, it's a, it's a high. It's addicting. So there's that element that keeps you going. There's the real joy. I mean, I still find it's like a solitary joy. I get the same joy playing the guitar that I did when I was 14 or 15. When I pick, If I pick it up by myself, if I get down in a quiet, dark room and I can spend an hour just fooling around, it feels the same way as it did to me when I was like 14 or 15. It takes me somewhere else. So that's also kind of addicting mm -hmm. it's like a part of you and it's uh maybe it's therapeutic also it's cathartic it's spiritual it has a lot of beautiful qualities to it so that might be a little bit of esoteric answer but that's my answer um i know that things are different now because of the pandemic but i know that you've kind of you live in 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 europe and i know that a lot of north american musicians like want to play in Europe because this seems to be more respect for the arts 
um, more opportunities. How do you view, like, for your career, is being based out of Germany a good thing, or is that a is that a negative? It's a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag. Um, yeah, I mean, I did play over here a lot, even before I ended up living here. And ironically, I probably played more uh, when I wasn't living here. I played more over here. I toured more. But it was it just has to do with where I was in my life and where I was in my career. I mean, I took a unique career path in that I got married and started a family kind of after all my career high points were already behind me, sort of. So I, I, I haven't been as ambitious in these last years, let's say. I didn't, I haven't actively pursued um, keeping myself busy um, the way that I did when I was younger. Right. Because I had a, a young son at home and I kind of wanted to be present. I sort of had the luxury to do that also. Right. Um, so I wanted to be present. So I can't exactly say how it could have gone or would have gone. I mean, on the one hand, you know, I left a place like Los Angeles where the pool of musicians was pretty incredible. And I was starting to really get into some interesting circles of players because that's sort of a, a social process, how that happens, how you meet different people. How do you, you know, you're playing with so-and-so and then the next thing you know, you meet this guy who invites you on into some other scene. And the next thing you know, you've, you're in a whole other scene. Um, and I, I really miss that. I don't have that at all here, to be perfectly honest. Right. I don't have the pool of players and not the, the different scenes. But again, I'm living out in the country. I mean, Berlin has got scenes going on for sure. Um, but Europe, it's grown incredibly. The, the music scene and the blues scene has grown like exponentially since the days when I was touring over here. So there are a lot of really cool players over here. And I had some great experiences and I've been able to play with some amazing people. So, and yeah, the gigs are better and they, you're treated a lot better. That is for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, sad to say, you know, and the things in the States really only got worse. Um, they got worse over here as well. I mean, live music in general and not just blues, but the whole, the entire music business, everything has changed. I mean, it's just changing and changing. So live music, even before the pandemic, was in a somewhat precarious place. Um, and now a lot of a lot of people are saying, man, we don't know what it's even going to look like, you know, if it's really going to come back uh, in yet another form. So I feel very lucky that I caught, I did sort of all my heavy touring in the last of the great touring years in a way. Yeah. I mean, I, I hope the live music scene will come back because I look forward to seeing you again, <laughs> you know, because there's nothing <laughs> well, like live experience. Yeah, I absolutely. And I hope that everyone agrees with that. But, but I mean, you know, the, the whole face of music itself. I mean, now I, I, I check music through my son is 14 now. Right. So we try to share stuff about music. And of course I'm turning him on to all kinds of stuff and classic stuff. And, but you know, what he's playing me is 
electronic dance music and hip hop and computer based stuff um that's doesn't bear much resemblance to to what I had when I was growing up so sometimes I worry for the younger generation if they're really going to understand what you know four guys standing up there playing actual instruments and singing at the same time what that really is or what that really means right which is like when you and I speak about live music I think that's more what we mean yeah for sure but to a to a 14 year old you know that that that's sort of an oddity you know a quaint a quaint anachronism or something <laughs> do you get to play with him like if he plays the drums, do you ever get to jam with him? Yeah, yeah, bits, bits and pieces. We do, we do. Well, that must be a neat for thing. For sure, for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I hope I'm hoping there's more in the future. Yeah, um, I'm hoping there's. I should wrap this up, but thank you so much yeah, for doing this. I, I it's, it's a thrill for me to talk to you again. Um, let me wrap up by asking one more question. Tell me, when you look back, tell me about your journey in music and, and how you look back on it. Yeah, well, that's a great question. That's a great question. Well, for one thing, even in light of everything I just said, that I'm less ambitious now and I'm sort of in the twilight, entering my twilight years, but the journey is absolutely ongoing because, you know, one element of the journey within music is it's purely personal it's like really i'm still that same guy i'm still that 12 year old guy 13 14 year old guy discovering things on the guitar and trying to expand my vocabulary that's what i was doing five minutes before we started this conversation <laughs> and it was like oh man i really should be able to finish that line you know like where, what is it what are those notes i'm missing so the journey there's a lot more for me on the personal level, sort of just personal growth. Mm -hmm. um, and and then the journey, you think, wow, where has it taken me? And the people that I met and the, some of those moments, yeah, to, to, to be in that room with B.B. King and have him tell me a story while he's playing my guitar or crazy, you know, some of the ones that, stories I wasn't able to tell, but, and, and moments on stage playing, uh, great moments that you, you'll never forget. You know, I can remember playing certain solos that happened 25 years ago and it's, you still know what it felt like in that room. So yeah, those are pretty, pretty amazing moments, but also that it took me around the world that, it, that led me to meet my wife here in the south of Germany and have a son and it, it sort of encompassed everything well thank you so much for doing this I, I'm thrilled that you were able to do this and um, thank you so much for sharing your life with us Marco it's my pleasure and the, I like the questions that you ask and the, and the format that you're using because you're it's a little more personal than you tailor it to how each guy is reacting and answering so I'm a, I'm, I like to improvise, so I took some, some solos there. <laughs> I hope they were good ones. They were great. Thank you. <laughs> All right, Marco. Great to talk to you also, and I hope we see each other in person. I hope so, too. In the not-too-distant future. I think we will. Thank you. Thank you.